while I was studying and preparing for this opportunity today, I came across a particular document. And the title of that document caught my attention. It read, from the top of the Mount of Olives, you can see forever. And that is very appropriate to the text we're going to be treating this morning. Pastor Jim asked me to look at Mark chapter 13, and those words are very suggestive about what transpired in that particular chapter. This chapter is Mark's version of what the church has commonly called Jesus' uh, uh, discourse, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. It's considered by many to be one of the Bible's most important texts. It's also both the Lord's final lengthy teaching before his crucifixion and also his most extensive prophetic teaching. And I might just go ahead and say it that it's also considered often as one of the most discussed and debated passages of all Scripture. So let's go for it. To read it, And to study it is to find yourself looking through the eyes of Jesus and seeing the future and events of the future as he sees them. So let's get started. Over the last two Sundays, Pastor Jim has taught us from this very same context we enter into today, the same physical location, Jerusalem's temple compound. Two weeks ago, with him, we looked at how after entering Jerusalem on Sunday, on Monday, Jesus turned over tables and kicked out the crooked money changers and the sacrificial animal merchants from the temple compound in at least a symbolic effort that the temple needed cleansing. Pastor then led us in applying that to our own need, to our own personal lives, to our own times, that we too need to turn over corrupt and unhealthy tables that might have been set up in our own lives. Last week, the focus was still in the temple, uh, actually on Jesus' teaching about the fig tree. He called it figs to freedom, drawing from Jesus' cursing of the fig tree on the way from Bethany to the temple earlier that same Monday morning. So again, this morning, we're going to start out in the temple. Chapter 13 takes place, however, on Tuesday, the next day. The events recorded in Mark chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 all occurred in the week just before Passover, what proved that year to be the very last week of Jesus' earthly life. Passover, as you know, was an annual Jewish feast, among others, uh, and the reason for that Passover feast was very significant for the Jews. Therefore, when Passover time came, Jerusalem was always flooded with visitors coming from near and far 
to celebrate that important feast day. This was the festival when the Jews remembered and commemorated God's deliverance of them as a nation from Egyptian bondage, or you may as well call it slavery effectively, and how God used the great leader Moses to accomplish that deliverance. Well, in the same vein, uh, in the time of Jesus, the Jews still felt again oppressed and dominated by a foreign entity, this time the Roman Empire. And they longed again for God to raise up another Moses, another leader, to liberate them from the oppressive rule of the Romans. And some must have asked the question as they got to know this man, Jesus, could this possibly be the one? Could this be Jesus that will liberate us? The Roman authorities would certainly recognize how volatile the times surrounding Passover were, and they would no doubt have made preparations for any eventuality of violence or resistance or any kind of societal disruption. And just note that it was in such a politically charged moment that Jesus chose to make his trip to Jerusalem not at all unaware of the implications and the risks created simply by his presence there. If you in your lifetime have studied the record of Jesus' activities throughout the New Testament scripture, you've seen that initially in his life and ministry, he was hesitant to identify himself openly as the Messiah. But in these passages, Mark chapter 11, 12, and 13, he seems to be increasingly willing and ready to accept that title while understanding that he would be viewed as a political threat by both the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. Now juxtapose over all of that information those activities of his on Monday of clearing the temple of the money changers and animal sellers and such dramatic activity would just seem to confirm, at least for the Jewish leaders, their suspicions that this man could really prove to be trouble. As chapter 13 opens, Jesus and his disciples are actually leaving the temple area for what will prove to be his last time on that Tuesday. On the way out to trek back across Mount Olivet all the way to the little village of Bethany, as they were leaving the temple, someone of the disciples with him drew Jesus' attention to the surroundings they were in and the massive stones and magnificent buildings which made up the temple compound, speaking of their beloved Jewish temple. And truly, from all accounts we can find, the temple was an impressive, amazing sight. Let me also point out that it was the holiest place in that hour for the Jewish nation and their one and only temple. A valuable source of information about the temple coming from the time of Jesus is the writings of a Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. He's very expressive and very descriptive in his writings about that impressive building, saying that uh, 
that the building itself was overlaid with sheets of gold or plates of gold that were so brilliant that when the sun hit it in just the right way, it would absolutely be blinding to the human eye. So bright was the gold. Josephus then added that where there wasn't gold plates on the exterior of the temple, there were blocks of marble, pure white marble, so white that from a distance, strangers might, in his words, even mistake that there is snow sitting on the temple. Well, as they were on their way out, the disciples, having drawn, uh, tried to draw the attention of Jesus to that impressive structure, much to their surprise, rather than joining in with them or agreeing with them or making his own complimentary comments, Jesus chose, rather, to turn in another very dramatic and prophetic direction speaking prophetically in response to their bragging about the temple, he foretold the unthinkable, the unimaginable, frankly, to those disciples, the unbelievable. He replied and said, did you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every single one will be thrown down. Now, Right here in the front, what was starting out in this chapter as an ongoing chronicle of Jesus and his followers in their visit to the temple, suddenly from verse 3 forward, and for you and I sitting here today, uh, it gets very complicated from this point on. But let's continue to track it a bit. In verses 3 and 4, we find Jesus and his disciples. Indeed, they have left the temple area, and they have made that exerting a walk across the Kidron Valley and up the sides of the Mount of Olives, and they are found sitting somewhere near the summit of that small mountain. Now, out of some combination of curiosity and concern, the scriptures say that Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they have rather pulled Jesus aside for a private conversation. And sitting there with Jesus, it seems that they were concerned about his prophetic revelation of things to come in the future. And those four disciples wanted to pursue the issue with what has proven through the centuries to be a couple of enduring questions, especially as it concerns the prophetic foretelling of the future. It seems that any time that subject comes up in any form, you and I, we have two automatic, curious questions. The first question, when will these things be? And secondly, what will be the signs that they are about to be fulfilled? Well, at last, we could say, these disciples are asking appropriate questions for their context to Jesus. They had an understandable interest in all of the whens and the whys and the whats surrounding Jesus. These men had loyally followed him for the last three years. They even seemed to anticipate that he would be the one to free the Jews from Roman rule and take his place rightfully as their conquering king. That was in spite of the fact that he had informed them very clearly that he must die. 
They still did not grasp the reality of his pending crucifixion. But his prophetic declaration of pending destruction had certainly captured their attention. It seemed to them that victory over Rome might not be as quick and easy as they had thought when contemplating this man Jesus. So they wanted to know more. Thus their private encounter with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Again, when it comes to prophetic things, these questions still hold priority for many of us today, don't they? Read any of the prophetic texts of Scripture. Hear any preaching or any teaching about anything prophetic about the future, and we almost automatically uh, default to asking, when will this happen and what will be the signs? Albeit, prophecy is just as much or more telling forth, announcing God's truth as it is foretelling the future. We have this strong interest to know the unknown about our tomorrows. And to some degree, I suppose that is only normal. The problem for us comes in how we interpret all of these events. For you see, not everyone interprets everything the same way. Let's insert here at this point a historical reality connected with this story. It was only some 40 years after Jesus spoke those prophetic words on the Mount of Olives about the temple's destruction that it was indeed totally destroyed and dismantled literally stone by stone. The year was A.D. 70 to be exact, and that is a matter of historical record. The Jews of that day were in rebellion against the Romans, And after experiencing some early successes, ultimately, they were totally crushed by the Roman forces. Roman soldiers then surrounded the temple, and fire soon swept the entire structure. Well, that ornate gold that Josephus described on the roof and plated on all of the exterior walls began to melt and to run down literally into the cracks between the stones of which the temple walls were built. In order to salvage that gold, the Romans literally ordered that the temple be dismantled stone by stone, just as Jesus prophesied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every single one will be thrown down. Now, here's how things get complicated in the world of foretelling prophecy from Scripture. Not everyone interprets biblical prophecy identically. Even this particular story about the destruction of the temple, there are multiple theories, multiple interpretations about Mark 13. For example, there is some who hold that the A.D. 70 destruction by Rome was the absolute total fulfillment of everything prophetically said in chapter 13. In chapter 13. To them, prophecy is all past and all finished. Tribulation has already occurred, and Jesus has already appeared. He just appeared in judgment. Others say that A.D. 70 has nothing at all to do 
with the prophetic words of Jesus throughout Mark chapter 13, that the complete fulfillment of his words are still future, still yet to come at the end of time. There's still another group that would say that his prophetic words in this chapter are both past in the fact that they have been partially fulfilled and partially foreshadowed in the past, in the past, and yet they are still yet to come in their complete and final fulfillment in the future. Well, how one chooses to interpret prophetic words and those events certainly influences how one views the future, even for you and I here in 2023. So let's take a look quickly at the disciples' two questions that they asked. Their first question, when will these things happen? Jesus gave them a direct and clear answer. It's found down in verse 32 of this chapter. He said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Actually, those words need little additional comment. Date setting is either off the table or it is an exercise of wasted time. My generation has lived long enough to have experienced many misguided date setting efforts. Someone is always trying to tell us uh, the date of the rapture or the date of the tribulation or the date of the millennial reign, or the date of the final return of Jesus. Somebody is always trying to tell the world that they've figured it all out. Well, I'll leave unnamed the author of arguably the most infamous date-setting debacle in recent memory. That would be a NASA engineer slash Bible student who predicted the rapture of the church would take place in 1988 between September 11 and September 13, to be exact. He, in fact, published a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. It said that he mailed 300,000 free copies of his book to ministers across America and then ultimately sold 4.5 million more copies in bookstores across our nation. Well, when his prediction failed to materialize, the author followed up with new books and new prediction. He published again for 1989 and again in 1993 and again in 1994, all to no avail. And the fact that obviously those book sales didn't rise so high, he didn't publish anymore. But we just need to remember that Jesus already settled end-time things, sitting on the Mount of Olives with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The timing belongs to the Father. Their second question was about the signs. What will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Well, the answer Jesus gave them to that question encompasses the rest of chapter 13. It's said to be the longest answer to, a, to one given question that you'll find anywhere in the gospel records. 
Beyond his prophecy about the temple's destruction, it also covers the issue of massive persecution right up through our present age, then the increasing tribulation yet to come, and multiple signs relative to his own coming and additional signs focused on the end of the age. Everything here prophesying future signs and events should give us a sense of Jesus' imminent return and help us remember that this world and all it offers to us is at best temporary. It's only our relationship with God that is eternal. A Welsh pastor teacher by the name of Ivor Powell in a great work entitled Mark's Superb Gospel Outline chapter 13, as you see in your handout notes. Section 1, he calls inevitable destruction, verses 1 through 4. We've talked about that. This section is about the Roman siege uh, and destruction of both Jerusalem and the temple. He wanted his disciples forewarned and able to prepare. Section 2, Powell calls international tensions and disorder. Here in these four verses, look for the familiar words we relate to prophetic things almost instinctively anytime we hear them. In this section, you'll read these phrases. Many will come in my name and... When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, and nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and then you'll also read there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. It is chock full of signs. Section 3, Powell entitles, Inescapable Difficulties. Here Jesus foretells multiple personal risks and dangers which will be experienced. You will read in this section, you will be handed over to the local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. One account of me, you will stand before governors and kings. Brother will betray brother to death. A father will betray his child. Children will, be, be, uh, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, Jesus said. A plethora of personal risks and difficulties that Jesus predicted. Section 4, Powell refers to as inspired declarations. This section contains what some people consider the most discussed and debated words of all Scripture. Unraveling all of the definitions and all of the precise applications in this complicated section and striving to find that specific timeline that we want to put our hands on so badly, it's all very challenging. But one part of this section I'll draw to your attention today because it is clear and easy to understand. That's verse 26. While the Olivet Discourse does not focus on the rapture of the church, we look to John 14 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 for that information. It does in this chapter, however, speak of the ultimate second coming of Christ. In Jesus' own words, he made this declaration. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Note he did not say people will imagine People will think, 
People will dream. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So regardless of one's understanding or interpretation of the timeline, the chronology, the details, Jesus himself declared people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's still ahead of us. Time unknown. Signs will abound. Jesus said it. You and I better believe it. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. Have I said it enough times, or do you want me to say it one more time? At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Powell then calls section 5 important decisions. Look at verses 32. 33 and 34. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. Three things stand out from this passage of Scripture. One, Jesus is coming again. Two, the time of that coming is unknown. And three, there is still work for you and I to pursue as we wait for that coming. The call here is to know that he is coming. In spite of the unknown timing, he is coming. And meanwhile, our work for him goes on day by day uninterrupted. Now, I feel I need to say something here that's important and hopefully will be helpful. Let's talk about the fact that signs are indicators, not signals. There is a difference between an indicator and a signal. This coming Wednesday evening, Central Assembly will be going to Hammonds Field for America's pastime, a baseball game. Depending on when or if you arrive before the start of the game, there will be a lot of indicators that there is actually going to be a game in that stadium, on that field, that very night. You may get there and find that one team or both of them will be on the field already, stretching, running sprints, doing batting practice, uh, pitching warm-ups, exercising one another. As important as all of those activities are, none of them represent the start of the play. All of these things, however, are indicators or signs that the game is getting close. The national anthem by Pastor Josh and our choir, sung better than it's ever been before, by the way, it will not indicate the start of the game. The first pitch thrown out by our sports star, Pastor Jill, that will not indicate the start of the game. For you see, these are all indicators that game time is drawing near, but they do not represent the starting signal. In the official rule book of Major League Baseball, there is indeed a fixed signal that starts the game, and there's only one. After detailed preparations, the chief umpire will finally look around him and make sure that everything is right, and then he will cry out, 
play ball. And that's the only signal that says game on. In a track meet, that starting signal is often a gunshot. In auto racing, the starting signal is a green flag. Any other activities or movements are only indicators, not the signal. The same is true of the myriad signs Jesus names in this chapter. Accompanying those listings of signs, Jesus also said something very important uh, about this in verses 6 and 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of, of wars, he actually says, do not let that alarm you. Such things must happen, but listen to this, but the end is still to come. Just indicators, you see, valuable as they are, they're not the signal, they're just indicators. Then he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains, not the start signal or the launch signal, just indicators. We need to be able to distinguish the difference between indicators that are around us every day while we wait for that signal. And seems to me, I read somewhere in Scripture that there is going to be an unmistakable symbol, and if I'm not wrong, it's going to be a trumpet sounding, and I do not intend to miss that signal. <laughs> indicators and signals. I have one point remaining, and I believe it's the most important one, the most significant one. It's the imperative of Jesus as to how we are to respond as these things unfold in our own future. Jesus does not teach us to ignore the signs. He does not teach us either to obsess over the signs. He does not teach us to ignore biblical prophecy. Studying it, familiarizing ourselves with it, trying to figure it all out is totally valid. But according to what I read in this chapter of Scripture, it's not his priority. The final word on this issue is literally the final word of this chapter. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. His final word for us in this discourse is to watch. And obviously, with the significance he gives it here, this is a term, an imperative term, that needs a level of unpacking for us. The Greek term used here is most often defined as watch in the sense of being attentive, remaining alert, being actively awake, especially in contrast to being indifferent, dismissive, or even lazy. Here's what I wish to say about watching. First, let me clarify that to watch is not to run for the hills or to cower in a cave. There is no call for the church to build a bunker, dig a hole, or stock a shelter. 
but rather the call is to stick to our assigned task. Keep on living for him. Keep on worshiping him with our whole hearts. Keep on witnessing for him and keep on encouraging everybody around us to make ready for the ultimate inevitable return of Jesus. I'd like to also say, watching is not exactly the observing and cataloging of everything resembling a sign or even attributing those to a validating scripture. There is value there. We should pay attention to the signs around us, informed of those by the very scriptures that we are reading. They will provide us insights, especially on how to better motivate others to be ready. Jesus' focus, however, on watching goes so much deeper than just keeping a notebook on everything we consider to be a sign that's in the skies or the heavens or in the world around us. His focus of watching is far more profound than that. Watching is just as much internal, a guarding of my soul's condition to assure my readiness to ultimately let go and go when that day actually comes. Jesus is calling us to pay attention, to be intentional about everything from watching the words we speak, from watching the physical actions that we perform, to probing the deepest part of our minds and our souls, watching over Things like our motivations, our attitudes, our relationships, our ambitions, our soul's humidity, humility, and it goes on and on and on. Paying attention, watching all aspects of life to assure our constant readiness. That's what watching is all about. Then watchfulness, which implies carefulness, and attentiveness stands in critical contrast to carelessness. God, help me not to be an aficionado, knowledgeable and enthusiastic about the indicators, yet careless about my own soul's readiness. Rather, help me to watch. And then let me say watchfulness is to assure readiness and preparation for eternal joy. It's possible to use end-time events and truths about eternal choices as scare tactics. End-time truth is more valuable to us than that. End-time truth includes a victorious ending for the people of God a casting off of the cares and struggles and tragedies of this sin-soaked world we are bound in. The critical issue is watching, meaning standing in a prepared condition, having made the good spiritual decisions we need to make and daily maintaining our walk with him. In that case, what lies ahead of, of us is all worthy of celebration. In that case... If we make ready and we stay ready, what lies ahead of us will be days of celebration. When Jesus says, watch, those of us who have made ready and are striving to stay ready, may that call to watch 
simply invoke a heartfelt cry from each of us. He says, watch, and we say, I can hardly wait. Matthew Henry, the famous preacher and commentator of the late 17th and early 18th century, offers us a final admonition for today in his comment on this verse. Our great care must be that whenever our Lord comes, he may not find us secure, indulging in ease and sloth, mindless of our work and duty. He says to all, watch that you may be found in peace without spot and blameless. You know, for my generation, we've pretty much seen it all. The wall-to-wall prophecy charts that were so prevalent at one time. The rapture movies. We've heard the informative teacher teachings of biblical scholars as well as the speculations and theories of practically everybody else. And standing here today, I don't have all the end-time answers and probably never will. I believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. I believe in the rapture of the church, our blessed hope. Afterward, I believe that Jesus will return and rule and reign 1,000 years. No, I don't know all the minute details, and I can't give you all the definitions and probably never will be able to do so. But I do know the one who said he's coming. And everything he's ever ever said, he has fulfilled. And if he said he's coming, ladies and gentlemen, get ready. He is coming. Watch, Jesus said. When Jesus said, watch, we respond. Come, Lord Jesus. I can hardly wait.